Hey guys, before we get started today, we wanted to take a minute to thank you, the listener, for tuning in and proving you have a growth mindset. Our mission is to curate information from the top influencers around the world. We provide you with real, actionable steps on how to improve in all areas of your life, whether you own a business, are a C-suite exec, have an entrepreneurial mindset, or you're just starting your journey of self-development. Professional development is all about growth, and if you're not growing, you're dying. If you enjoy this content, please help us help others by liking, sharing, and subscribing. Here we go. Hey guys, welcome to the Professional Development Podcast. Today is Wednesday, June 16th, and we've got on a very special guest, uh, Connor Beaton today. Connor is the founder of Man Talks, an organization focused on men's health and success. He's an international speaker, a podcast host, and an event leader who pushes men to dig deep for their purpose and for confidence. Uh, Connor's been a guest with people like Gary Vee, Lewis Howes, uh, and spoke on TEDx, multiple TEDx stages. And now he's here with us on the Professional Development Podcast. Connor, thanks so much, man. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, guys. Yep. Um, so you've got some really interesting concepts, uh, concepts on like positive psychology. I know you're a big Carl Jung fan who I've kind of like very surface level touched on personal development, shadow work, all the above. Uh, but let's start with, um, I guess, um, what you fell into for a really long period in your life. And that's what you call the first rule of man, which you compare to the first rule of fight club. So talk about that first rule of man, what it is and how it's affecting us. I mean, I think it's becoming less and less popular, but the first rule of man is basically you don't talk about what it's like to be a man. So when you're going through divorce, when your business is you know, suffering, when your finances are suffering, when your health is suffering, you, you generally, you don't talk about these things because there's a perceived like weakness. And along with the one rule of man is this notion that you are going to gain strength through suppression. So many, many guys will go through life with this unconscious belief system that if they can stuff shit down hard enough, whether it's you know, their imposter syndrome, their pain from their childhood, the disappointment from the divorce that they just went through, you know, not getting to see their kids uh, often enough. If they just repress that or suppress that, that they'll, that they'll be stronger because of that. And so this is in, in many ways, I think this is like the, un, the undoing of a lot of men that we, we don't address our own pain. And so one of the things that I often say is like a man's work begins in pain. It begins in us being able to look at our lives in a very real way and say, you know, where, where am I suffering needlessly? Because this is often the case is that when we abide by this one rule of men, right? Don't talk about it. We create all sorts of problems. And in some ways, Fight Club is a beautiful example of that. You know, here is a movie where Edward Norton, the narrator, has a psychotic break, basically, and creates this other character, right? Brad Pitt's character, or Tyler Durden. Tyler Durden is the manifestation of the narrator's shadow. He is literally uh, a physical manifestation of everything that that man wanted to be, but couldn't because he suppressed, because he you know, didn't talk about the fact that he hated his job, you know, and was freaking miserable and is ordering furniture off of a Sears catalog on the shitter, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. but, but that's the, that's the expectation that a lot of modern men fall under, whether it, you know, is passed down from generations before them or, 
you know, however it's however they adopt the mentality. There, there's just this mentality that for so many men, if I don't say anything, I'll be stronger. If I avoid the problem, it'll maybe go away. And, you know, I mean, this bleeds into every aspect of our lives. It's the reason why couples go to therapy four years too late. It's the reason why most men, you know, don't, don't get checked for their prostates and their testicles. And, you know, they, it's, it, they have health issues that come on too late. So it, it really, it bleeds into so many different areas of our lives. And it's a detriment to men's health, wellness, success. It's a detriment to our families. And yeah, so maybe I'll just pause there because I threw a, a bunch of stuff at you. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a lot of good information. I mean, you say that is funny. Like I think of my uncles. My uncles haven't been to, they talk about it. They haven't been to the doctor in like 30 years. Because it's right. just like, yeah, you know, it's like nothing's wrong. So why go, right? Um, and I think that's, that's a lot of what's built into society is like you said, it's like shrug it off, shake it off. If it hurts, don't show it, right? If you get, if you get hit by the pitch, don't rub it. Right. One of those right. things. And, you know, we were supposed to have you on a couple of months ago and you, you became a father during that time that we had to postpone. Has any of your views on all of this changed since having your son? Hmm. I don't, I don't think so. Like having my boy, I mean, having my boy has been amazing. I've loved becoming a dad and it's, you know, I think in many ways, I've been fortunate enough to work with thousands and thousands of men from around the world. And this, I've seen this narrative time and time again. I don't think that many of my views have changed. If anything, I've just tried to make more time, if, if anything else, uh, so that I can be present for my son. But I don't think that many of my, my viewpoints have changed. And a lot of that is mostly because I did a tremendous amount of work leading up to having my boy. You know, I did a tremendous amount of work. I've been doing this work for 12 years. I've been leading men's work for, you know, a decade. I've been working with men in in this way for a very long time. And, you know, I, I sort of held off on having a kid because I knew who I was. 12 years ago was a shit show. You know, if I had brought a child into the world 12 years ago, like that, that poor little entity, <laughs> but um, you know, and so, so yeah, no, I, I don't think that much of it has changed. I think if anything, it's reinforced the idea that I, I don't want my son to grow up in an environment where you know, he's told to ignore parts of his actual experience. You know, he's told to ignore pain. He's told to ignore sadness. He's told to ignore whatever it is, right? And and to just turn a blind eye to it. And I think that in in our in male culture, we have we do ourselves a bit of a disservice by pretending like there aren't things that that could be bettered you know, and that, that we as men can sort of pursue that path. So I think it sort of reinforced the, the need for it, uh, if anything else. Do you think, because I heard that you had a party thrown for you before your son was born, where you had a group of other uh, men come over and they started to tell you all the great things that would make you a great father. Do you think mm -hmm. if you had something like that around you 12 years ago, you would have been ready? Or do you still think that you just weren't in the position? Yeah, I definitely wasn't in the position. I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, also, I just didn't have those men around me, right? Yeah. The men that I had around me, you know, were were drinking their faces off and, you know, 
doing drugs and partying nonstop and, and, you know, benders all weekend. And, and I was one of them and I was lost and immature and broke and I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And so, I mean, that's not to say that you can't bring a child into the world under those circumstances and, and not be successful as a parent. It's just to say that I personally didn't want to do that. And, you know, I'm very grateful for having put in the work to be the man that I am today to give my son the best chance possible in a world that is admittedly radically chaotic. I mean, it's a, it's a mess, right? If you talk to anybody, I mean, we considered not having kids because I was like, it's a shit show, yeah. you know, like <laughs> it's a pretty, it's pretty disastrous. So what are we bringing a child into and, and do we even want to do that? So yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad I didn't have that back then. And, and I don't think I would have been ready, even if I had those caliber of men around me. Um, yeah. Gotcha. And so you, you talk a lot, kind of going back to it, you talk a lot about how uh, men have this tendency to, to hide their feelings, to hide their emotions, to not talk them through. Um, are there any one or two that you can point to specifically um, that the overwhelming majority of men maybe hide uh, and it's become a, a detriment to them personally and professionally? Uh, any one or two emotions that men hide? Yeah, or just anything that men in general just hide from talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think the there's so there's a few things in there that I think are important. One some some men have become so cultured to suppress and hide and avoid and lie that it's just a part of our identity. Like for me, the reason why I got into this work, I lied my face off. I, you know, I was a chameleon. I was really good at talking my way out of situations. And I would use that to, you know, sleep with as many women as I could. And I would use that to nice. get out of every, yeah, yeah, to get out of every situation. And <laughs> talking about, you know, <laughs> <laughs> so that so like that that led me down a very specific pathway, which was ultimately ending up in in rock bottom, you know, and and destroying most of my life because I was a fraud in many ways. And the problem is that most, not most, but some men feel like frauds because they're not owning who they actually are or what they're actually doing in their life, and they're that inauthenticity which is a, you know, a big buzzword in, you know, in pop psychology and self-help. But that inauthenticity basically can just be defined as when we as men aren't honest with who we actually want to be, who we see ourselves as capable of becoming financially, emotionally, as fathers, as husbands, as leaders. But to be more tactical, I think the, the two main things that men generally hide come down to shame and grief. Men do not want to feel, express, or have other people see their shame. It's why a lot of men don't come forward about the abuse that they experienced as a child. It's why a lot of men don't talk about the infidelities that they're having. It's why a lot of men don't talk about the failures that they might be experiencing. It's because they don't want to experience shame because they already are, because they already are drenched in shame. And shame is like alcohol, shame is a suppressant. It's an emotional suppressant. So when you feel shame, it is, it's showing up and suppressing your anger, suppressing your sadness, suppressing your fear, your anxieties. And so that's one big one. And then grief is definitely the other one. And grief can be categorized as, you know, sadness, loss, et cetera. Yep. Um, and, you know, I think 
there's a lot of sayings around that. You know, you look at sayings like suck it up and, uh, you know, man up and stuff like that. And, and those, those are generally wartime sayings, right? You look at something like man up. Man up is a saying that the, that the sergeants would say to the, to the, um, uh, the men that operated the tanks to go get into the tanks because the, the men were so terrified. Because in World War II, when they were fighting the Germans, the Germans were fucking dominating them. The, the German pincers and the German tanks were destroying the Allies. And so the saying that they had was, man up, go get in the tank, even though you know that you have a 60% chance of dying. And so a lot of these sayings are that, that we have adopted that have been handed down generation through generation are really marred in trauma. You know, they're, they are, they're riddled with the grief that, you know, men came back from war having seen some crazy shit, not having any resources, not having any support. You know, imagine watching your brother or your best friend explode next to you and then coming back to your wife and your son and not really knowing how to process that. So a lot of that's just filtered through generation after generation. And what we are dealing with now, what most men are starting to process now, whether it's through therapy or men's work or, you know, professional development or you know, whatever it is, is the trauma that's just been handed down through generations. So I'd say that grief is the other one, you know, being able to talk about the divorce, being able to, to work through the sadness of, you know, losing a child or being diagnosed with cancer. I mean, those, those are the types of things that I see men coming to me all the time with or having lost a father, you know, that you've been estranged from for years. And then all of a sudden he's gone and you haven't had a chance to, to navigate any of those conversations with him. So those, those are the, the two specific ones. So Connor, when uh, you hit your rock bottom, uh, I guess it would have been 12 years ago, um, I remember just reading that you were living out of the back of your car. Uh, was there one specific moment that led to that? Or I, obviously you said you dealt with a lot that really pretty much all compounded to get you there. And then how did you get out of that? What was your first step? And was there some sort of, was there some sort of piece of content or book that you read that led you on this journey to get where you're at today? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of pieces in there. So I'll try and condense it. Sure. There wasn't necessarily one specific event. You know, it was, it was a multitude of events. I, I had been out of integrity in relationships. I'd been lying to my girlfriend, all of them. I'd been cheating on all of them. And I had really developed the kind of like disdain for myself. Like I felt out of control, you know, and anytime a man feels out of control in his life where he doesn't feel sovereign in his decision-making and he doesn't feel capable of leading himself relationally, financially, sexually, in his, in his, in his, whatever it is, health or finances, he's going to create resentment and disdain towards himself. So, you know, I had for years been out of integrity and I had for years been lying. And so there certainly wasn't one event, but if there was one event, um, you know, my, my girlfriend at the time had caught me cheating and it, it was really damaging. Like I really finally saw the the consequences of my action, you know, because before that I've been able to talk my way out of pretty much every situation. And in this situation, it was, it was really harmful. You know, I was like staring down the barrel of the pain that I had caused her and, and I couldn't escape it. I couldn't talk my way out of it. I couldn't get around it. It was just done. There were the consequences. And 
at that same time, I was also questioning the career that I was in and I was moving out of that career. So really everything kind of fell apart. My career fell apart. My relationship fell apart. Uh, I was living on uh, in Victoria, on Victoria Island. I didn't really know anybody there. And she moved out of the apartment. And, you know, I just found myself putting my stuff into storage. And because I felt so ashamed of my actions, I didn't want to tell anybody. I didn't want to tell my friends. I didn't want to tell my family. I didn't want people to know what a piece of shit I, I had kind of become, you know, for lack of a better term. <laughs> sure. But... But, you know, that that's what it was. And so, uh, you know, I spent time in there because it, I spent time living under the back of my car because in some ways, that's what I thought I deserved. You know, it's kind of like I was paying penance. I was, I had like sentenced myself, I guess, in in a way. And what got me out of that, I mean, man, that was like a, it was like a two and a half year journey after that where I was fortunate enough to have found a mentor um, uh, an elder that I that I worked with and learned a lot of what I use now today. Um, there was a number of books that I read along the way. I think you know one of them that that I've gone back to a number of times is the the Wisdom of Insecurity by Alan Watts, which is just a phenomenal book. Um, so I don't think there's necessarily one piece of content, but I think that the big moment for me was dis- was deciding that. Lying, hiding, and being untruthful in any way was a damaging and had a net negative impact on my life. And so I decided to just start getting clear and be transparent with people about what was going on. I started to talk to friends. I started to admit to what you know what I had been doing. I went and you know went and sought some help, um, and that started to piece things back together to the point where. I made it a mission to speak the truth, regardless of what that truth was, because sometimes that is hard. It's very sometimes that can lead to other people's feelings being hurt, and sometimes telling the truth can lead to you getting, you know, in today's world, viciously attacked online. Um, but you know, so so that's that's kind of like the quote unquote TSN turning point. You know, is I, I just decided that 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 was more detrimental than anything else. And I think the reason why I made that decision is that I had destroyed everything. Like I had nothing left to lose. And I think for most men, we there. what I've seen is that there's many men that are waiting for a rock bottom in order to change. They're waiting for it. It's almost like they're unconsciously sabotaging more and more and more and more, and they're fucking up more just to bring them down to this place where finally their their pride and their ego can be so destroyed that they can finally take the action that they've wanted to for a very long time. And that happens for a number of reasons. I don't know if you guys have ever been there where like if you've ever had that rock bottom moment in your life. Sure. But what I've seen is that a lot of guys are sabotaging in, almost intentionally to have that moment where they can create a change in their life because they feel incapable of changing without it. Connor, that I everything that you said speaks so much to me and selfishly here real quick. Um, that is something that I did to myself for the last three years up until uh, a week from now will be one year, uh, no drinking for me. And mm-hmm. I drank and drove every single day for about three years. Um, self-sabotaging, honestly, hoping that something bad was going to happen that was going to turn my life around. And uh, luckily I hit a rock bottom 
I didn't hurt myself. I didn't hurt anyone else. But uh, a lot of people are in that moment of, and we talked about this before on the podcast, they make changes for two reasons, inspiration or desperation. For me, it was desperate. I'm sure most of the people that come to you are out of acts of desperation. So for those people that are listening, especially those guys that are listening to this right now, how do they find that inspiration outside of listening to this podcast or uh, consuming your content? Yeah, I mean, it's not gonna be sexy, but you, you manufacture <laughs> the desperation. Right. You manufacture the desperation. Yep. So you literally get really fucking clear with, if I keep going down this path, what's actually gonna happen? And that might require you, you know, like working with someone so that you can, you can in a physical way, feel the impact of that. Because what most men are, are running from is that shame and that grief that we were talking about before. They're waiting till, the, till they hit rock bottom to be able to feel that shame and the grief. That's where it hits. That's where it happens. So if you can, if you can find somebody that can help you get into that shame and that grief, the pain that you've been holding on to before you hit the rock bottom, you can sort of circumvent or create that experience of hitting it and allow yourself to start to create that change because out of that happen, has the inspiration. And for most men, you know, that's hard. It's hard work, right? It's not pleasant. It's not, it's not fun because for every man, like I knew if I didn't hit rock bottom, I'd have to come clean. You know, I'd have to own my shit. And I didn't want to do that. I was, I was bitching out in a way. Like, yeah. you know, I, I'm swearing a lot on your show. I hope that's okay. Good. Yeah, no, you, you, um, you actually can't say fuck or shit. Or, yeah, right. You know, right. Yeah. We're at the edit but, all that out. You know, but that's, you know, that's essentially what I was doing. I was hiding from my own pain. I was hiding from the consequences of my actions because I didn't want to admit to it. And so sometimes that requires us going to someone else, a mentor, a colleague, a coach, a therapist, or whomever, and saying like, I'm fucking up and I don't know what to do. And, and I need some form of intervention. Um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, the inspiration comes out of giving yourself the permission to experience the things that you don't want to experience, to talk about the things that you've been avoiding and to own the things that you've been running from. And there's no way around it. There's no way around it. I just can't say it enough for the people that are listening to this. There's no way around it. Either you do it in the moment or it will do itself to you. And I find that super interesting. For me, I've been super lucky to be surrounded by some really great mentors. And it sounds like that's what that was your pick-me-up moment was when you found that mentor. So what, what would you suggest for people who are out there that feel lost like there is nobody out there for them? Where, where do they go? I mean, there's a there's a ton of spaces that are starting to, you know, unfold. Like within, like even within my organization, we we run something called the Alliance. There's, you know, three or four hundred men from around the world that are a part of it, and there's a ton of mentors in there. There's a huge age range, you know, guys in their twenties, guys in their sixties and seventies, and so that you know those types of spaces. There's a ton of them. There's every man. There's I mean. Uh, there, there's just, I mean, I'm not going to necessarily list a, a, all of them off, but there's those types of places you can go. Um, I mean, I, th I think your your question points to the fact that we, in some ways, lack elderhood within our culture, like real elderhood, which is being felt by our generation. You know, there's a lot of old people, um, but there's not a lot of elders to go to, 
that we can extract wisdom from who are willing to be that kind of beacon in the confusion and the chaos, because that's what elders are supposed to do. That's what role they're supposed to serve. So, you know, I would say seek out those types of spaces. I was fortunate uh, in the sense that the the man who supported me was already in my life. He, he was in his early to mid seventies. He was already in my life, and um, and and so that you know that was really um, sort of circumstantial. It's not going to be the case for everybody. But what I would say is, look in your life first. You know, who in your life would you consider to be somebody wise that might be able to support you in solving your problem? or somebody that at least you could go to. And, you know, Carl Jung, <clears throat> to bring in Jungian psychology, said the first step in the therapeutic process is confession, right? It's the thing that I didn't want to do, right? It's the thing that every addict doesn't want to do. It's the thing that every man doesn't want to do when he's being unfaithful, when he's acting out of integrity, when he's fucking up his business. Like, what again, whatever it is, it's the thing that we don't want to do. So find somebody that you respect enough, whether they are you know, elder, they don't have to be 60 or 70, but somebody that you respect enough that you can go to and say, this is what I've been experiencing. I don't know how to deal with this. You know, what would you recommend? And for us as men, it's a very important part for us to, to, to play, right? To be able to go to an elder, to be able to go to someone that we respect and be humble enough to put our pride and our ego aside enough to say, I actually don't know how to deal with this. And a lot of men could benefit from doing that. So start in your life. You know, if there's nobody in your life that you can identify, find groups, find a therapist, find a psychologist, find a coach that you respect. I mean, there's so many resources out there now um, that, that you can go to and, and don't be afraid to fire a few, you know, like just because you show up to one coach coach's office or one therapist's office doesn't mean you have to stick with them, you know, find somebody that's going to, to really challenge you. And that's, I think that's the main requirement is that as men, the reason why therapy doesn't work for a lot of guys is because they don't feel challenged. They go in, they talk about the same shit and nothing happens. Yeah. So find somebody that's going to challenge the hell out of you. Yep. I like that a lot. Um, I think the first step towards making any change is always action, right? In this case, it's just getting it out there um, and tough pill to swallow. But like you said, uh, and Carl Jung said, confession, like confessing. And and uh, and actually on the, the Leo Marshall interview that you did uh, about a year ago, you admitted uh, and kind of confessed that for a period of time that you were getting a lot of validation from having sex with a, a lot of other women, right? Uh, my question is, why is that a bad thing? <laughs> yeah. So, okay. good question, Matt. No, it's good. It's good. Let's let's <laughs> let's address this. Let's address this. Okay. Having sex with a lot of women isn't wrong. Thank you. If you have sex for validation specifically, if underneath all of that, your self-worth as a man is hinged on what a woman can give you, you are fucked. Because your self-worth is outside of you. It's in the hands and in the pants of a woman. It's not in you. You don't own it, right? You don't own your own self-worth. So I didn't own my own self-worth. I may have been sleeping around, which was great, felt real great, right? You know, at the time. But I didn't own my own self-worth. 
And so the the challenge was is that I had to claim that, and that required me to go on you know a, a, a bit of a journey to figure out what that looked like. And for a lot of men, they it's easier to get the validation from women than it is for them to go on the journey. And it's in in many ways, it's because we we are lacking some form of initiation that de- demarcates uh, a a boy and a man. And so a lot of men get into their 20s and into their 30s and they never had any sort of real initiation. And so they use sex as initiation, right? They use how many women can I conquer as initiation? And that gives them the sort of false sense that they've become a man or that they've bought a house that gives them the false sense that they've that they've become a man. And so we need to initiate ourselves in many ways and that's a maybe a broader topic. But the, the simplest form of it is you need to go on some form of a journey or quest to claim your own sense of self-worth. That might mean, you know, getting, getting your shit together and, you know, losing the weight that you've been talking about for five years. You know, a buddy of mine just lost 200 pounds over the course of five years. And what it's taught him is he has claimed his own sense of self-worth where he doesn't have it. He didn't have it before. So it's those types of things that we that we need to embark on. Yeah, and and obviously I say that I say that jokingly, uh, and but I think you bring up a good point, right? Whether it's women or whether it's money or whether it's any type of external source, like your your validation should not be predicated on that, right? Your validation should be predicated on how you feel about yourself as a human being. Yeah, yeah, and, absolutely. And I find it super interesting. Something you mentioned is there's no initiation. And that's kind of like something that's in North America, really, right? I mean, there's a lot of other cultures that do have that initiation from a boy to a man. How come that's never happened here? Yeah, I mean, like historically, I think because we've been somewhat isolated uh, within North American culture, I think we've also entered into a, a military industrial complex. And so we've, we've militarized men. And so we've told them that their initiation maybe is joining the army, right? Joining the military. And so the only men largely within our culture that show any indication of initiation are often the men that go to war uh, or, or the men that are in our indigenous communities, not all of them, but some of them that actually go through tribal forms of initiation. So I, I think it's missing because we've largely extracted it and we have this very adolescent, heroic version of what it means to be a man. And so we've, we've like culturally, and I'm sort of getting a little esoteric here, I understand that, but culturally what we've done is, is we've stopped our maturation. We've literally stopped maturing at this sort of adolescent hero. And we've said, this is it. I don't want to go any further. And so the idea of us as men becoming elders and bearing the responsibility of what that might mean for you in your life doesn't even occur to us. And so we try and live in this very heroic adolescent mentality for our entire life, never actually transitioning into the later stages of masculinity, into the king archetype, right? The real king or the real magician archetype. Or the real warrior archetype, right? The, the the warrior archetype doesn't just stop at going to war. He becomes a, a form of elder that that provides initiation for the younger generation. He leads the boys out into the wilderness and teaches them how to survive. <clears throat> so 
Yeah. So I, maybe I'll just pause there before I, I get too uh, far out into the weeds. No, you're good. And and I, I like that. And so I guess my question kind of to parlay off that is, um, it just kind of popped into my mind. What are your thoughts on fraternities? Because I joined a fraternity and although it seems dumb, like to compare that type of initiation, it's like, because you got to, you know, wear uh, this like pen attire is what we would call it on a certain day of the week. Got to go sing to girls uh, during certain times for them, right? Got to do all this like little bitch work. But in reality, like it was something cool that I worked towards to become a member of this, right? And you go through this bitch work and you do the grunt work and you check your ego at the door in order to become initiated and actually become a member of something. So although it's not like a, a tribal initiation or a formal, like I, I still think that there is value in things like that. Yeah, I mean, I would just challenge that by saying it's uninitiated men trying to initiate men. Right, those aren't initiated men. Matt's like, fuck. Like, <laughs> well, that backfired. They're just not. They're not elders, right? They're not yeah. elders yeah. in 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 communities, in traditional communities, right? What you were saying before is that there are some communities that that have initiation. Yes, of course. Well, who's leading those initiations? They are initiated men. They are men that are elders. They are men that have gone through those that have been out into the world. Frats do a good job of of teaching what initiation could be and what it could look like, and in, it depends on the fraternity, right? I mean, there's there's so many different wild variations, and some of them, sure, you know, are, are maybe more damaging than others, mm-hmm. um, and and some of them are are maybe better than others. But I w- I would largely say that those are men that haven't gone through the rigors of of really initiating themselves, like doing a keg stand or, you know, doing bitch work for somebody is very different than spending four days out in the wilderness on your own, having to fend for yourself while fasting and then coming back and explaining your experience to someone who has led, you know, somebody that's in their sixties, that's led a 500 of those experiences, you know, or, or going and doing five grams of mushrooms with a shaman that has led you know, thousands of those experiences. It's not quite the same. So yeah, I hear you. I think I think that they serve a function and a purpose, but I think it can very quickly be the thing that men are like, no, I'm I'm good. Um, but it allows them to stay again in that like heroic adolescent place. Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. Essentially because we're being initiated by kids. Like a 22 year old is is a kid. Right. I get yes. it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it, and even if you're 27 did you have your shit together fully at 27? I was a clusterfuck still. I'm 33. I still don't fucking have it together. So, <laughs> right. so like, this is what yeah. I'm saying. This is what I'm saying. But yeah. Cool. So we're getting ready to have uh, Michael Easter on. I don't know if you've heard of him. He was on Joe Rogan a couple, a month ago. And he actually talked about this where um, you don't really find yourself until you do go like on an adventure where you're, you're, immersed in a situation where it is a life or death, where there's a potential that you could die. Is that mm-hmm. something that you think that, because I personally think in the world now, there's so many people that are sheltered that don't have that that experience. Is that something that that is missing? Yeah, yes. I mean, we have a lot of domesticated men in North America, certainly. You know, a lot of men that like the the cushy life, you know, the, the, Netflix, the Netflix life. Um, but you know, initiation is meant to be something that brings you in contact with death, mm-hmm. whether it's the energy of death, whether it's witnessing death, whether it's almost dying, 
um, whether it's having a, an NDE and near-death experience initiation, it's in its true form. If you if you study, you know, different tribes, different initiatory processes, all of them in some way will put you in contact with death, and it it does that because you are changed through that experience. And the purpose of initiation, of putting you in contact with death, is so that you can come back to culture, come back to your community, come back to your society and your family and your friends, and be more effective as a man. It's actually initiation. There's a gentleman named Francis Weller whose work I really appreciate. But he says that initiation is not for you. Initiation is not a personal development experience. Initiation is so that you can return to your community a more effective man. So it's actually about how you show up in your society and in your community. And the the contact or the coming into contact with death is incredibly important because otherwise in that heroic space, we like to pretend like, you know, our shit doesn't stink, like we're invincible, you know, like we can street race, you know, on our motorcycle, 250, 200 miles an hour through the streets and, and act like it's, like there aren't consequences to that. So it puts us in relationship to limitations as well. So it's a very, very, very important part. And it also helps us see the sort of numinous space, right? The enigmatic space of existence, that there are things that we just don't understand and that and that we maybe never will understand. Yep. And we, like you said, we've never really got that opportunity for the initiation. Uh, so I have an idea. Could us five... Uh, do you know a shaman that us five can get a hold of and we all take four grams of mushrooms? Five and we, grams. And we, five grams. Five. And we all get initiated together. Would you be down for that? Sure. I feel like that'd be a sweet yes. story. Let's do that. I'll, I'll, lead, I'll lead that for you. Let's go. Hell yeah. We're about to get fucking initiated. <laughs> uh, but um, no, um, in all seriousness, so um, when I was looking on, a, I guess, a podcast that you did back in 2018, it was a mini episode. How to leverage uncertainty. And this is kind of a personal question coming from a guy that I consider myself a planner uh, and fairly organized, which means I hate uncertainty. How would you, um, how do you leverage uncertainty or how would you explain to our audience on how to leverage that? Mm, like tactically? Yeah. I think, okay, so not existentially. All right. So tactically, how you leverage uncertainty is that you, you realize that first and foremost, change has a force, right? So change is trying to change you in some way. So uncertainty is the force of change. When you don't know what's going to happen, when you aren't sure what is going to happen, if you can't predict what's going to happen, then what are you left with, right? You can't plan, you can't strategize, what are you left with? This is a question for you guys. If you can't plan, you can't strategize, and you don't know what's going to happen, what are you left with? Only your skills. No control. You got to be okay. resourceful. Okay. No, no control, only your skills, and you got to be resourceful, right? So if you can't plan, and you don't know what's going to happen, and everything's uncertain, the only thing that you are left with is in some way faith, is in some way relying on the fact that you have developed the skills in order to navigate whatever's going to come towards you. The other option is to dissolve into anxiety and fear and worry. So the reason why so many people in our modern culture have so much anxiety, have so much fear, and have so much worry 
is they actually don't trust themselves. They don't, they don't actually have a deep sense of trust in themselves to be able to face uncertain moments. So what you can tactically do is look at your life right now. There's probably in everyone's life, there's probably some form of uncertainty, whether it's in their career, when they're going back to work, <clears throat> um, you know, what their finance is going to look like in a, in, in, a, in a year or so. And there's a few things that you can do. The first thing is how do you allow that experience to happen? How do you allow that uncertainty to be present? Okay. It's a very foreign thing within our culture to allow. So how do you practice allowing and acceptance, which is actually a verb, right? You need to practice acceptance. The second thing is how do you prepare for the unknown? You rely on your skills. So what skills do you need to sharpen for the unknown? So that's, that's the second question that you can ask. And those skills might look like something like, well, I can prepare to be more disciplined. I can prepare my workouts. I can prepare my, my eating habits. I can meditate more and medicate less. Those are the types of things that you can do in order to navigate the uncertainty. But I think the biggest lesson that most people don't want to receive is what I was saying before. The biggest lesson about uncertainty is that you have to accept it. You have to allow it. And that is a very foreign concept in a culture where we are so used to dominating everything. And so people don't like that idea. <laughs> people don't necessarily like that idea, but it's, it is in many ways a, a strength, right? Bruce Lee said, be like water. Well, why did he say that? He said, be like water because when the uncertain shows up, you're ready to move with it. So you, you have to develop a really acute sense of presence and attention and focus. And this means that you can't be distracted by useless garbage, right? You can't be distracted by social media, doom scrolling through Instagram or spending hours swiping on Tinder. It means that you have to be really present in your life to know <laughs> I don't know who you guys are looking at there. <laughs> but that's, you know, that's that's it. So it might not be the sexy answer, but it's the answer that I have that I have found. The more that I have allowed uncertainty to be present and that the more that I've allowed uncertain variables to show up in my life, the more my life has grown. Yep, love it. Yeah, I love that. Connor, you have a, a book that's not out yet, correct? That's correct, yeah. Uh, can you give our audience a little bit of a rundown of what that book looks like, what they have to look forward to? Yeah, yeah. So simply, you know, simply put, the, the, the book is called Men's Work. Um, it might change between now and being published like late next year. Um, but it's, it's just a book that looks at what is the work that we, we as men need to do in order to be self-led. How do we become self-led, self-authored, self sovereign men? What does it actually look like in our lives? So it gets into um, understanding shadow work, which is a big proponent of Jungian psychology. Uh, and the shadow is the part of us where we store all the things that we don't like about ourselves, our insecurities, our fears, our worries, our inferiorities, our, our pain in a lot of ways. And so it, it actually guides a man through a sort of step-by-step -step process of being able to come into contact with that hidden part of himself, his sort of alter ego that's sabotaging him, and begin to work with it and integrate it so it's not... Uh, Jung said the, it, it, that if we don't tend to the shadow, it becomes the unconscious snag that thwarts our most well-meaning intentions. 
So the book is basically designed to walk a man through everything that he needs to know about embracing that hidden part and being able to find a deeper sense of resiliency and self-leadership. I love that, man. And then uh, just a funny follow-up. Not a funny follow-up question, but I was curious because uh, I heard you start to say uh, earlier, you were talking about street racing and you started to say kilometers per hour. And then you're like, I'm talking to yeah. a bunch of guys from the middle of the country. So I'm going to say miles per hour. Um, <laughs> so I actually wrote down a, a question here, like with your street racing, what's, did you ever race? Was it pride that you raced for? Would you race for pink slips, girls? Pussy. A good, it's a good Fast and the Furious oh, yeah. reference. That's good shit. That's good shit. No, I mean, I just, I just loved, I just loved going fast. Um, I think that actually might be a line from the movie as well. But no, I just, I really liked. You know, I had a thousand C Honda. Uh, it was a VTR one thousand, and I bought it when I was nineteen, and I loved it, and I souped it up. And I did everything that I could to it. I loved street racing it. I loved stunting it. I stunted it for a while. And so, you know, pulling wheelies on the highway and switching between first, second, and third gear and, you know, wheeling it like, uh, well, I don't know how to convert that, but like 150 <laughs> kilometers an hour. <laughs> um, and, you know, doing stoppies and, you know, Superman wheelies, like laying down on the bike. And I, I just really liked, you know, I think it, it ties into... We as men love pushing our edge, you know, like we love coming right up to our edge. Like what can I, how can I push myself physically, mentally, emotionally, financially in my career, in my business? We, we have this kind of innate drive and desire. And if we don't learn how to use that part properly, it can be a shit show, right? So I liked to push my edge and I just did it in all sorts of, of illegal ways. And then I found ways to actually you know, turn that into running a business and and supporting people. Um, but it was a blast. I had like, uh, my, my bike was yellow. So it was like bumblebee yellow. And then I had the the helmet and I had these two inch metal spikes across the top. <laughs> it was ridiculous. Oh, you went all out. <laughs> all I went out. all, all out. I had like full uh, D&D uh, uh, pipes and like from the headers up. And it was loud. It was one of the loudest street bikes that you will have ever heard in your life. It was so much fun. Damn. That's awesome. That is. You got any videos? I don't, I don't know. I'd have to search because I, <laughs> like, you know, I, I rode from 19 until probably about 28, 29, then I sold the bike. Um, I have photos of it and I have photos of the helmet and everything like that. I have to look for... I think somebody took photo, like video footage of, of me wheeling through parking lots every once in a while. So I, I have to go find that. <laughs> um, so Connor, we're going to, uh, uh, our last question before we let you go, we're going to ask uh, the, the OnlyFans inquiry. And so who do we have? today, Bobby. So I, I have that one today. So this OnlyFans inquiry is from uh, Sir John. Uh, his question is, and it kind of ties into something we talked a little bit about earlier. What characteristic do you think separates a man from a boy? Mm. I, think the, I think the biggest component is the willingness to take absolute ownership, regardless of the outcome, regardless of the consequences. A boy will skirt that all day long. You know, he, he will find ways to lie about it and avoid it and, and not want to embrace it. And a man will own it and he'll own the consequences. And there's virtue in that. And I think that in, in many ways, that's what I was talking about before, is that we've, we have a lot of men that are old that are still boys because they can't own 
the the parts of their life that they really need to. Love that answer. Love it. We appreciate it. Well, this has been real, Connor. Um, this has been a really fun podcast. Um, hopefully we can have you on again soon. We're really, really looking forward to doing mushrooms with you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no doubt, man. The, those five, the five, the five gram is called the hero's journey. So oh, I'm fucking ready. I'm ready, <laughs> I'm ready, ready to, to become be a, a hero. hero. <laughs> so all seriousness, Connor, thank you so much for coming on, man. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it.